Hello and welcome to the sixth and final episode of the Personalized Care podcast series. I'm Bogdan and it's been an absolute privilege to speak to some of the most inspiring, wonderful, influential leaders paving the way forward, ensuring personalized care sits at the core of our clinical practice. Over the previous five episodes, we've covered a wide range of topics, including veterans and women's health, health inequalities, long COVID, and undergraduate training needs. We hope you found the conversations as fascinating as I have, and I'd love it if you could tell your colleagues so we can share this wealth of expertise further. If you've missed any of the episodes, it's not too late to go back and listen to them. In this special episode, we focus on personalized care and keeping people healthy within their homes and local community. Together with our guests, we'll explore this topic through the lens of NHS at Home, a national program aiming to ensure people have faster access to more appropriate and targeted care within the local community and at home without necessarily having to attend emergency care or arrange GP appointments. To get us started, we'd love to share with you Colin Royal's first-hand experience of the programme. So I was really fortunate uh, enough to benefit from NHS at home recently. Uh, I was provided with a pulse oximeter, which helped me to measure my blood oxygen levels, and also provided with some really good uh, reading materials, which helped me to understand how to use it, how to record those oxygen levels, and what to do if I had any concerns. It was really beneficial having that pulse oximeter because what that meant was that I was provided with a lot of reassurance uh, with some on-tap advice um, if I was con- had any concerns and also was much better use of NHS resources because it meant that I wasn't turning up at uh, A&E if I, had, if I suddenly felt really unwell um, or wasn't phoning up 111. The role of technology is fantastic, um, and not only the technology, but the making sure that people understand and feel um, knowledgeable and skilled in terms of how to use that technology as well is making such a difference to people's lives. NHS at Home has so much potential. It's now uh, going much more beyond uh, just uh, treating people who've tested positive for COVID. It's supporting people in any number of different ways with different conditions. Um, And utilising technology at home can make such a difference both to the individual, um, but also to our precious NHS resources as well. Thank you ever so much for sharing your experience with us, Colin. Let's get an overview now of the NHS at Home programme and its relevance to personalised care. Shortly, I'll be talking to Dr. Matt Inanda Kim, who's the National Director for Infection, Antimicrobial Resistance and Deterioration, and Dr. Shahid Ahmad, National Clinical Director for Cardiovascular Prevention. Before that, I'm delighted to welcome Laura Bimson, Head of Implementation at NHS at Home. Laura, welcome to the Personalized Care Podcast. It's a joy to have you here today. Tell us about NHS at Home. What is it and how does it help people stay healthy and well within the the local communities? Thank you very much, Bogdan. I'm really pleased to to be here. NHS at Home is basically um, an approach that provides better connected, more personalised care in people's own homes. So um, NHS at Home is part of the Personalised Care Group. Um, and we're bringing together lots of different programmes across NHS England and Improvement, 
ultimately with the aim to offer people fast access to more appropriate and targeted care within the comfort of their own homes. So through this, we want to avoid unnecessary admissions or appointments and support early discharge from hospital. And we're working closely with lots of teams across NHS England and improvement, including the clinical policy unit and digital colleagues, as as well as a whole host of other areas and community health services. But fundamentally, this is about a different model of care that builds on the significant digital transformations and the shift that we've seen over the past few years and the acceleration in the use of digital technology, but really importantly, what we've seen as a result of the the pandemic. So what we want to do is, and what we are doing actually, is really harnessing all of those beneficial changes that we've seen so we can accelerate recovery and transformation and ultimately create a more comprehensive offer for digitally enabled home-based services across the whole of the country. That does sound uh, innovative, Laura. Now, I know we'll hear more from our next guest about some of the initiatives practically, but give us an idea of the range of the uh, support programmes available. What I would say first is that, and one of the reasons that we're doing this is that we know that people want to be more actively engaged and confident in managing their health and well-being. And they want the choice and the convenience to do this at home. And we know that clinicians want this for people too. So NHS at Home, it was started as a result of the pandemic um, to support the pandemic response back in May 2020. And some of the people listening may be familiar with the work that we've done on COVID oximetry at home, COVID virtual wards, um, and also blood pressure monitoring at home. And what we've done is we've taken kind of the learning from that work and we've, um, we've applied that in other areas of how we can use that at-home approach to support people to better manage their health and well-being. We've been working closely with ICSs and primary care to look at how we support them to restore and transform the way that long-term conditions are managed in general practice. So that's working closely with the AHSNs and in particular UCL partners who developed a series of frameworks to support six long-term conditions hypertension, AF, uh, cholesterol, diabetes, COPD and and asthma. And that provides a framework to identify and re-stratify people with those conditions and to understand who needs to be seen sooner and who potentially could be safely phased until later and provides a, a framework for a proactive care review with those people, which fundamentally is also about a kind of a step change in self-management and how they may better manage their their long-term conditions. And a a key benefit as well is around, um, with that programme of work, how we optimise the workforce. So how can we use other roles such as healthcare assistants, care coordinators, to have those conversations with people, but really importantly, have those conversations in a holistic, personalised care way, rather than just focusing on the condition. So really excited about the work on on proactive care and working with 14 ICSs at the moment and uh, much more interest. But we are also looking at how that can support recovery of long-term conditions. So as COAF's reinstated and um, general practice are are focusing on those people with long-term conditions, using that as a way to, to best support general practice to do that. Thank you, Laura. That's very good use of, of technology indeed. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, some of the specific areas that the programme focuses on? 
two of our other areas of work, lung health at home and managing heart failure at home is supporting people um, with those conditions to how they can get better manage those conditions at home. So utilising remote kind of monitoring technology, but also other kind of digital tools as well as non-digital interventions on how they can better manage their conditions in their own homes. So for, for lung health at home in particular, working with the clinical policy unit and the respiratory networks, support people to access pulmonary um, rehab and, and how potentially we can also streamline and improve that pathway and use technology to do so. So looking at people who are identified and referred into pulmonary rehab and prior to the assessment, how technology can support some of that process um, pre kind of from referral pre-assessment and how we can improve access and the range of provision um, available around self-monitoring and self-management of people with, with lung conditions. And, and for managing heart failure, that's kind of um, following a similar approach, but again, looking at people with heart failure, how they can better manage and support their conditions in the comfort of their own homes. And if I can, I'd like to just also mention an exciting kind of new area of work um, that we're just currently in the stages of, of scoping, actually, and that's diagnostics at home. So how can we really leverage and capitalise on some of the medtech transformations that we've seen but also on the legacy of COVID and the use of lateral flow devices in people's own homes. So potentially can we repurpose some of that technology and use it for different purposes and for people to to test in um, in their own homes as well. So that's really exciting, but very early days and quite a bit of work to do to kind of scope out the potential and the area of focus on that. Yeah, so great use of technology there, Laura, isn't it? And and I think what, what strikes me is not necessarily just the use of technology, but the integration with the multidisciplinary teams and the collaboration between community, primary and secondary care there. Uh, so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, so I think the integration um, point is really important, actually, because this, this doesn't work in isolation. It, it doesn't work just with a tech. It doesn't work just by people self-monitoring in their own homes on their own. It needs to be part of an integrated pathway across kind of services. One of the really important things was that that was part of the pathway and there was a clear self-escalation pathway. So there was an intervention as a result of people taking their results. They didn't just note the results and nothing happened. So that's what we're trying to do through all of NHS at Homework, make sure that, that there is that integrated pathway across settings and across systems but that that's done in a joined up holistic way that makes sense to people as well. Uh, and, and Laura, can I just ask, have you started looking at the evaluation process of the programme or are we still early days? I think it's a bit of both, if I'm honest with you. It, it's early days in relation to measuring the longer term kind of impact of, of some of the work. I'm really pleased that NIHR um, has agreed to, to do evaluation um, for NHS at home across different programmes of work, but that, that's a longer term element. For some of the long-term condition work that we've been doing, so managing heart failure, for example, we've we've had some self-evaluations on from the early adopters and the ICSs that have, have been doing that. And then there's been evaluation commissioned for COVID oximetry at home. So it's, it's a bit of a mixed picture because different areas of work are at different stages. And we, we've got some kind of emerging evidence that I'm sure Matt will talk about, particularly around COVID oximetry at home and the impact that, that, that that's having. Um, and yeah, really 
really looking forward to when our longer term kind of evaluation is published, being able to, to share that the impact that, that this work is having. So I think, you know, evaluation obviously is, is really important to demonstrate the why that we're doing this, but really importantly as well to take the learning as well. It, what we want to do is scale and spread the NHS at home approach and be able to do that effectively. We need to know where it's making the biggest kind of difference and learning we need to take to, to have the greatest impact as well. I'm sure uh, the audience will will share my thoughts, but as as healthcare professionals, I think we welcome that uh, scale and spread approach of this, and I think we we wanted this for a long time. And seeing it in practice and being able to to leverage the the power of holding communities together and helping people look after themselves where possible, and then meeting those who are most in need um, with extra tools for support is the way forward. So now, Laura, I'm going to ask you uh, about some top practical tips from your end for healthcare professionals in personalised care and how can they leverage the programme as best as they can from your perspective? What can they do uh, to help? Oh, the, the big one for me is not following a one-size-fits-all approach and I think that's incredibly important and I, I can't emphasise enough the importance of doing this in a, a personalised way. We really need to um, understand what's going to make the impact and really make the change to empower and enable people to do this at home. So it has to come back to understanding the person, understanding what matters to them and what's the right intervention and support for them. What's their own personal levels of knowledge, skills and confidence, digital and health literacy. And we've got to take that into the round unless this is delivered in a personalised, holistic way based on what people want, how they want to interact with the health service and how they want their care to be designed and delivered. It's not going to make the change that we want to see. They're not going to make that shift to better managing their health and well-being in their own homes. So, and we absolutely have to start with the person and work around that and design care around that. Amazing. Music to our ears, uh, Laura. Thank you for that. Uh, That's fantastic. Uh, And we will now move on to our next guest. A warm welcome uh, to both of you to the Personalised Care podcast, uh, Matt and Shahid. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Uh, I'll go in turns to introduce yourselves, starting with you, uh, Matt. Uh, Tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. Hi, everyone, and thank you. My name's Matt Inardakim. I'm an acute physician. Uh, I'm the National Clinical Director for Infection, Antimicrobial Resistance Deterioration, and I lead on um, COVID auximetry and virtual wards. Welcome, Matt. Uh, and Shahid, over to you. Hi, I'm Shahid Ahmed. Uh, I've got two roles in NHS England. One is I'm one of the medical directors in the southeast region, and the other is I'm the National Clinical Director for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention. Fantastic. Grateful for both of your time today. Following from, from Laura's fantastic introduction to NHS at Home programme, I thought we'll do a bit of a, of a deep dive into some of the programmes that are part of NHS at Home. And I thought we'll do this in turn. So why don't we start with you, Matt? Uh, tell us a bit about virtual wards and how that supports people at home. So this project began with the observation during COVID that home monitoring of oxygen levels might be a route to improving outcomes, saving lives, enabling earlier presentation of those who were really unwell and also uh, managing patients who had COVID but were otherwise well safely at home um, in an attempt to reduce avoidable admissions but also improve safety and quality. And what it highlighted, if we imagine an iceberg, that COVID 
management is only the tip of a very big iceberg in regard to what else could be done with virtual wards. So with with COVID, we've shown that this sort of monitoring essentially helps improve the mortality rate, reduces length of stay, reduces intensive care admissions, reduces readmissions across the board. And what it set our minds worrying about what else we could apply this model to. And, and that birthed a whole amount of innovative thinking in different parts of the country about the what next. And that is currently where we are really the what next where else can we go certainly within the acute conditions sphere and increasingly within the chronic absolutely and when, when we talk virtual wards i know what, what's at the back of people's minds is always the the, the recent covid pandemic um, but as you mentioned there's so much uh, more scope in there and, and matt how widely spread have the virtual wards been um, so far well we've managed to pretty much touch on every part of the country so Whereas wow. with, 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 and the best example is COVID. So we began really with three or four sites across the whole country. And then it quickly built up momentum through a community of practice um, to 38% of the country. And then we got national help and mandate and resources and a team to develop and spread this model. And it quickly went from 38% to 100% of the country over 38 days. The message was, if it works, people believe in the model you know, and the belief was it would save lives and improve outcomes for patients and, and the way the health system ran. People did it. And um, obviously the, the, the pressure of the pandemic led to a real downhill slope and it's the quickest implementation pro- programme I've ever been part of from a national perspective. And that was due to the passion and enthusiasm on the front line. Mm, that builds so nicely on, on my next thought. I was curious to, to hear how healthcare professionals uh, perceived it, because from my end, uh, as a junior in the hospital, I always uh, would have loved to, to have uh, such things within the local community. And we know that we should embrace technology a bit more. So how did healthcare professionals uh, perceive this? We, we just, it, it was so logical. The more we educate and empower patients with not only knowledge, but also tools to actually look after themselves, the better their outcomes are going to be. It's, it's not rocket science. Oximeters just happen to be really cheap. We, we did an early study that proved essentially that oxygen levels predict who's going to live or die with COVID. And it was a real downhill slope in terms of selling that vision for funders in terms of buying oximeters. And then the rapid scale of development of resources to support this, a wonderful community of practice. And eventually NHS England Improvement supporting that with the NHS at Home programme, really pushing the boundaries and working at a ferocious pace to ensure that there was no postcode lottery here, that everyone had the ability to be onboarded to the system, whether they were rich, poor, white or black, or with full mental health or without that luxury. And, you know, this is, a, this is about giving power and giving resources to patients and the general public. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Well, it sounds like it's reaching the right people and those who need it um, most. And, and did people feel more in control? That was the most heartening result of all. So it wasn't the quantitative results, although they were really helpful in terms of the reduction in mortality, obviously deaths and improved outcomes across the healthcare system. The major thing I think that a lot of us took a lot of heart from was how much patients loved it. They felt reassured and we've got numerous interviews with patients recorded either in the BBC, ITV or whatever news channels, as well as newspaper reports, numerous YouTubes. And, and then I, I think in some ways, one of the most incredible things has been Amazon reviews. So we've we you know, if you look at oximeters and you start reading the oximeter reviews from the past couple of years on Amazon, you start to see that there is a pattern. 
the general public know what the oxygen levels are. They know how to monitor themselves. And um, you can see that reflected in the reviews where people are actually quoting back the oxygen levels, what they should do at different levels, when they should be worried, when they shouldn't be worried. You know, if we can get that into the general public's knowledge at the level of a social media level, then we've won. And, you know, as I say, it's the tip of the iceberg. Let's do this for all conditions because it's the partnership between healthcare and patients that's going to deliver the best outcomes of all. What fascinates me is that you both and the whole team at NHS at Home have uh, transformed the way we we deliver healthcare uh, and uh, converted the hierarchy uh, from the doctor knows best model and the medical experts so-called in the hospital and moving the the territory in the field in which uh, the individual can get involved uh, themselves. I I was very curious to to hear your thoughts about health inequalities and uh, maybe uh, digital literacy as well. Were people feeling comfortable to engage with the programme? And for those of them who needed an extra help or an extra hand, how how did that um, go for for the programme? It's, for us, it was about giving clinicians and frontline teams the ability to morph their programme into what the needs were of the population they were looking after. So very early on, we developed um, specific easy read resources, for instance, for the learning disability population, recognising they were particularly vulnerable and at risk from this. Multilingual translations, again, were first on the agenda right at the beginning, working with amazing colleagues in Slough and, and in various parts of the country to translate COVID auximetry monitoring information into, I think it was 12 or 13 different languages. And then we did multilingual narrated translations of YouTubes. Again, we would try to get this culturally sensitive because we realised that a translator is not going to do the job. You need this to actually speak to patients at a real language level. Um, and we had so many wonderful volunteers who you know, worked tirelessly to get this off the ground, usually for very limited amounts of funding. And, and that's what the kind of approach to COVID really was, wasn't it? It was about all hands to the pump. We could be better you know, there's no denying it. The inequalities still exist. And, and that is a major area of focus for us going forward. How do we equalise access? How do we equalise the ability to get onto monitoring programmes, to become empowered? And um, the battle is not won. The war is not won in this front. There are small battles here and there, but we still have a long way to go. And we will not rest until we achieve that. Absolutely. And the battles you mentioned that that have been won recently uh, are a step in the the right direction. And I think we all the clinicians listening and healthcare professionals are thinking this sounds like a no brainer in terms of reducing the the pressure, relieving the pressure, but also placing patients within the driving seat when possible, where possible. And then for those who need help most, uh, an extra hand and and a bit more um, support so they can get involved too. Um, So I love that, Matt. Thank you very much. I'd I'd now like to to move to to you, Shahid, and, and tell us a bit about blood pressure monitoring because I know virtual wards is an element but I know we're talking about blood pressure monitoring and and other uh, conditions that we can monitor at home and within the local community so I'd I'd be curious to hear about your your work on that. Sure so I was uh, asked not so long ago Shahed why are you so passionate about this uh, blood pressure program and I reflected and I thought what I'm really passionate about is saving lives and reducing health inequalities. It just so happens that blood pressure control is one of the best ways to do that. So I'm the National Clinical Director for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention and cardiovascular disease kills 136,000 people a year. That's almost exactly the same number of people as we lost from COVID in the first year of the pandemic. So it's a major killer and it continues to kill that number every single year. 
blood pressure kills about 65,000 or so people a year. And as well as killing people, it's a major cause of disability. So uh, blood pressure is a major risk factor for stroke. And we know that as a country, we spend about four and a half billion pounds every year on adult social care for people who've had a stroke. So if we can control blood pressure better, we can actually take pressure off our social care colleagues. And particularly in this environment, that is such an important thing to do. So at the start of the pandemic, we you know, sat down and we, you know, we thought, you know, our primary care professionals save tens of thousands of lives every year from their cardiovascular risk factor management. Uh, and in terms of cardiovascular risk factor management, that's broadly around atrial fibrillation management, blood pressure management and cholesterol management. And we asked our primary care professionals, so of these three risk factors, now that we are at the start of a pandemic, which of them are you most worried about? And they said to us, blood pressure. The reason is uh, manyfold. One is it's the biggest. We have over 12 million people in this country with high blood pressure. Eight and a half million are on our GP primary care registers. Now, every year we change the medication of about a third of them on annual review. So that's about two and a half to three million medication changes a year. And we know from the work of Zoo that if there's a six week or more delay in medication intensification, we begin to see adverse events in terms of heart attacks and strokes. So it's really important for us to control blood pressure. So we said to them, OK, so you've highlighted blood pressure. What can we do to help? And they said to us, give us blood pressure machines so we can give them to our patients so they don't need to come into the surgery to get their blood pressure monitored. And they have all the other benefits that Matt so eloquently talked about. So, so that's where the Blood Pressure Home Programme was born from. Ultimately, we distributed 220,000 blood pressure monitors to our CCGs to give to, the, to patients to help them manage their blood pressure. And one of the big markers of success is that a number of areas, so be that Frimley, Mid and South Essex, uh, Cheshire and Mersey, have actually procured their own monitors over and above the allocation we gave nationally. What an incredible number of blood pressure monitors sent uh, in the community. That's absolutely uh, incredible. And a step in the right direction as well towards uh, prevention. Uh, thank you, Shahid. I was just very curious to hear more about the user experience. How did people feel taking their own blood pressure? Um, did they need a lot of training? Was it uh, very intuitive? How, what did they think and how did they feel when they were put through the, the process themselves? So w- one of our bits of learning from this is that it's variable. And one of the key bits of learning is it's really important to give people both choice and information to actually to really support them. Uh, And the British Heart Foundation and Blood Pressure UK have fantastic resources to support people in both uh, taking their blood pressure, but also in terms of knowing what the numbers mean. And in terms of choice, the other thing that uh, we found it was very important for general practitioners to do was to give people the choice of how they sent the results back. So some like uploading it onto a website, some like sending it back by email or text, and some like dropping bits of paper off to their practice. Uh, And it's so important to give patients the choice about what they feel comfortable doing and not trying to shoehorn patients into a way of doing things just because it happens to be the preference of that uh, particular practice. 
Mm, absolutely. And especially when, when people would have a choice based based on what they prefer doing. And I know that was one of my biggest fears was around digital uh, and, and healthcare literacy in, in general as well and digital literacy. Uh, but it sounds like you've, you've been there to support individuals from, from all angles within the, the local community. You touched upon about the learning lessons. I was very curious to, to hear some thoughts. And Matt, you can, you can come in shortly after, after Shahid on this. Uh, any thoughts around evaluation or are we still early days? Or have you started um, looking at, uh, at the evaluation for the programme? So in one sense, evaluation of blood pressure monitoring at home has been done. So it's not new. Uh, we're lucky in this country. There's a chap called Richard McManus at Oxford, who's like you know a world guru in the academic studies uh, around evaluating uh, monitoring blood pressure. And that's actually really well established. I think for us, the key thing is about getting the messages back about what seems to be working on the front line in terms of delivery and helping share that knowledge. And, and one of the big things, you know, so Matt talked about communities of practice. So as part of the implementation programme, we had a trailblazers programme and a community of practice. And one of the things on an ongoing basis that we're trying to do is to try to provide frontline professionals easy ways of sharing their learning with one another and for, for each area it will be slightly different but their learning is valid and it is important to share that learning uh, and you know and we've got some you know fantastic examples you know we've got one GP who sends his patients MJOG texts asking them to send their blood pressure results in and also he does uh, uh, short videos that he sends to patients trying to uh, inform and empower them. So we've got lots and lots of micro innovation at the practice level, at the PCN level. And and I think that's right, because every practice, every PCN serves a, serves a slightly different community. And that sort of internal PDSA cycle is just so important. Absolutely. And Matt, uh, any, any examples from your end of, of stories that come to mind uh, from either patients or, or healthcare professionals who've been, been finding this transformative from, from their end? Yeah, I mean, the regions that have been able to produce the data because they have more uh, better data sharing agreements essentially have demonstrated essentially that these, these sorts of programmes, and particularly with COVID, halves the mortality rate. And um, if, you know, that basically has fired, I, I suppose, the, the desire to look at other acute conditions. Because beyond just COVID, it, it, there are lots of emergency conditions that kill you. And the tantalising question is, what is the monitoring and education that you can put in place? And similar to what Shahid's just mentioned, in terms of um, preventative treatments, but also that early signal that someone may be tipping over and just becoming on that verge of deterioration. And what that signal might be, because an empowered population is is looking out for those signs at an earlier point. The earlier we get to people that deteriorate, the better. And if you think about people living with disabilities, frailty, old age, learning disabilities, mental health, without English as a first language, what's critical is that we have a level playing field and that the people recognise when they're becoming ill and have the access to healthcare that they require, that our population is empowered to know when to seek help, what to say at that first critical contact point, and to ensure that they have equitable access, but also, I guess, the quality of healthcare that should be delivered to them in crisis times. So the whole thing is one large pathway that needs ongoing evaluation and research. COVID has shone a light on the whole in the NHS regarding data capture and linking outcomes from primary care all across the care pathway. And, and that's a, a gap we need to fill really urgently going forward. 
I'm nodding, I'm smiling, and I'm smiling because uh, to me, this isn't just a program. Uh, it's a complete shift in, in values, beliefs that have been held for a while now, I think. And I think this is what the future generation of healthcare professionals also needed to hear. And I think it's transforming what we do now, but also what we'll do for the future to involve patients and individuals at home and within the local communities uh, more in, the, in their care. Uh, so thank you for that, Matt. It, it's restoring hope uh, really in, in medicine in the longer run as well. Uh, and Shahid, where next with, with the blood pressure monitoring? Well, as I've said, a number of areas are continuing to purchase their own blood pressure monitors. And I think they're doing that for a number of reasons, one of which is we know that blood pressure control dropped during the pandemic. And one of our urgent tasks is to recover it. A to pre-pandemic levels, but B beyond that. So uh, our long-term plan ambition is 80% control. Now, you know, pre-pandemic, it was just under 70%. It dropped to just under 50% during the pandemic. Now we want to recover it to pre-pandemic levels, but also get to that national ambition of 80% as quickly as possible. Because as I've said, Number one, it's good for the economy, it's good for the patient, it's good for the NHS, and actually it's good for social care as well. So it's good for everybody that we try and achieve that level of control as quickly as possible. And blood pressure home is part of the tapestry. It's not the whole answer in itself. So we know that people are measuring blood pressure at vaccination centres. We know that places like Newham and Slough have got buses going out to particular communities where people can get their blood pressure measured. Um, We also know that it's so important to involve communities as well. So technical solutions are great, but actually they need to be owned by the community and how we work with community leaders to get them to understand the importance of cardiovascular disease prevention and uh, get their communities to own it. Because as Matt has so eloquently described in his bit, not every community owns health in quite the same way. But health outcomes should be an equal right for all. So to me, it's not just about equal access. It's actually about how do we get equitable outcomes Certainly, absolutely, Shahid. And I can see how this um, hugely helps with the remote consultations, self-management. It really shifts the power uh, within the local communities and that grassroots uh, approach within the, the, you know, building it in the local DNA of the uh, the local community and, and, and building on the, to bridge the health inequalities gap, making sure from, from both ends that this is available um, to individuals and that they can use it is, is crucial. We're reaching my, my favourite point uh, in, the, in the podcast usually where I ask you both for practical tips for our healthcare listeners. I'd be very curious, starting with you, uh, Matt, what would be your top practical tip for those listening? How can they best engage with NHS at home? Uh, What could we ask healthcare professionals uh, listening today to do? So uh, it's a good question. So where we are now is we've broadened the COVID approach to a virtual ward programme, which is largely built around trying to reduce bedded care. So improve the flow through hospitals, which is fantastic, but a tiny part of optimal care. What we have is an opportunity to completely transform actually the way we do business, moving away from siloed primary care and secondary care towards integrated care models and actually the delivery of proper access for patients, no matter what amount of money they have or education they have. And this coming together and developing solutions for patients and the general public within a personalised care remit, I think is the most exciting area of all. So I implore people to explore areas that go beyond just virtual wards, but are truly transformative in terms of addressing how patients become sick, how we prevent illness within them, and what solutions we need to put in place before winter. 
to ensure that our outcomes are maintained, that our elective recovery plans stay on track. Because we're not going to achieve elective recovery unless we nail acute deterioration and the way we manage the sick, deteriorating patient in community settings. This is a one-team approach. This is not about primary care versus secondary care. This is about what we can do together in an integrated care arena. Absolutely. And coming together to, to tackle this as a multidisciplinary team, both inter and multidisciplinary team, really. Um, Shahid, over to you with your practical um, tip or the ask for the audience, really. So, so very, very similar to Matt. I think one of the key things to really emphasise, and again, doing as much of this as possible before the winter, is minimise the risk of your patients having strokes, because obviously uh, that's bad for the patient, but also that then really impacts on social care. And as Matt said, that will then impact on urgent and emergency and elective recovery as well. So really, try, really focus on stroke prevention. And that, what does that mean in practice? Number one, Know your numbers. Uh, so not just your own personal blood pressure number, but actually as a primary care leader uh, or as a system leader, actually know how you're doing on blood pressure control. So see how far away you are from your 80% aspiration and how many patients you need to get controlled to get to that aspiration. Prioritise those who are most at risk first. And there are a number of tools such as UCLP search tools or QMUL ones and a number of locally developed ones as well that help you prioritise who is most at risk. That's not to say that everybody doesn't need treatment, but in terms of get to those who are most at risk first. And then in terms of delivering on blood pressure home, uh, it is very much around that bit about, you know, give your patients the information, uh, empower them and give them choice but also work with community assets and community leaders. As healthcare clinicians, we are only part of the health infrastructure that looks after individuals and they are embedded in their communities. They are parts of their communities. So work with community leaders to help them understand what cardiovascular risk is, you know, how treatment. We saw this during COVID, didn't we? We saw uh, clinicians working with religious leaders and those messages getting across to congregations about this is what COVID is. This is what, you know, what the vaccine is. This is how the vaccine protects. And actually, communities are really interested to know about health and how to protect their own health. So working with community leaders, I think, is absolutely crucial. Incredible, fitting every single piece of the puzzle there. We know care can be disjointed, but certainly NHS at Home sounds like an example of a, a whole system uh, approach from uh, working with local communities, individuals with lived experience themselves, uh, working with clinicians, not only just primary care, like you, you rightly put it, it's not primary care versus secondary care, but are coming together uh, to look after individuals uh, at home uh, and within the local communities. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time today. Uh, and we're very grateful and for all the lessons you've shared with us um, today. Thank, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity for allowing us to speak to you. Thank you. What an amazing conversation. Thank you all for such a rich discussion on personalised care uh, at home and within the local community. I'm so grateful for Dr. Matt Ananda Kim, Dr. Shahid Ahmad, Laura Bimson, and of course, Colin Royal for sharing their experiences and expertise with us today. For more information, visit the NHS at Home programme webpage via NHS England. 
We hope this conversation has been valuable to your learning and that you're now ready to apply for your personalized care certificate of learning or log your CPD points. Visit the e-learning portal on the PCI website to record your evaluation and to access many more learning courses and resources. We'd also love to hear from you on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook too. All websites and social media details are on the episode page. And don't forget to tell your colleagues so we can spread the word about personalized care as far as possible. Thank you for listening and goodbye.